0: Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Scanlon, from the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. This podcast is produced in partnership with the National Academy of Engineering. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Alan McDonald to the podcast. Alan is the head of groundwater at the British Geological Survey and is stationed in Edinburgh. His focus mostly is on groundwater development and management in developing countries for poverty reduction and water security. He's worked in many different countries, particularly Africa, India, but also in the UK. And today we're going to talk about much of this work. I think I would like to start with your recent work on Northwest India and central Pakistan, which was really surprising, interesting. We've been hearing so much about satellite data and the depletion in that region from the grey satellite data over the past couple of decades. The work has shed some light onto long-term development in this region. So could you describe a little bit about that and your collaboration with the Donald McAllister?
1: Thanks very much, Bridget. And it's lovely to be here chatting with you. This is work we just published this year. It was led by Donald John McAllister and in collaboration with the National Institute of Hydrology in India and in Pakistan with some scientists there. And what we were trying to do was put the recent trends from GRACE for the last 20 years, depletion that you get in, in that region, trying to put that in a much longer context. So GRACE has been fantastic in uncovering what's happening at the moment over these kind of large footprints, But we thought, let's look back a a little bit more into the past. So what we had done is over about three years, painstakingly put together lots of old borehole records of groundwater levels from not just this century, but going back throughout the whole of the 20th century and even back into the 19th century, the latter half of the 19th century. And what we discovered was that the big story for this area is really one of groundwater accumulation, not depletion. So groundwater levels have been rising there mostly since the 1850s. They've been rising until the end of the 20th century when they're now beginning to fall with all the rapid abstraction. So that was our big findings, really. It was really good to get all that data out there for other people to look at and to use.
0: And why weren't the groundwater levels rising? In the yeah. British, under British rule, you had a lot of canal irrigation. And so you had to reconstruct a lot of those data from old reports and yeah. stuff. So maybe you can explain a little bit about that connection between surface water and groundwater. And- yes.
1: So that's really yeah the the reason why groundwater levels have changed so much. It is it's human intervention and this area it was a huge building of canals that began in the latter half of the 19th century there had been canals in this area actually for thousands of years small irrigated canals there was a really thriving agricultural economy there for thousands of years but it was during the middle half of the 19th century that began this, this sort of mass construction of large canals which continued throughout the 20th century and these are huge canals i mean Like me, if you're in the UK, you're used to seeing canals in in, in our cities, which are fairly small things, but these canals are a much bigger scale. And what's happened really is that uh, these canals have been leaking water into the groundwater system. So over the last century, the the water, the surface water was being distributed out onto the interflows and water was recharging through the fields and the small canals into the groundwater. And gradually, the groundwater levels were increasing. And some places, you were then getting problems with salinization and then people had to put in drains to try and get rid of the excess water. So that was really why groundwater accumulated. And what we had done was, as you say, put together all these old records to try and find the the kind of scale of it. I suppose that's what maybe surprised us, is that at a minimum, the amount of water that's accumulated is about four to five times what's been depleted in the last 20 years. We've actually got four or five times that actually accumulated during the 20th century. So it was the canals. And another interesting aspect of that was that groundwater levels were rising even when the climate was really dry. So over decades in the 20th century, when it was really dry, you actually got groundwater levels rising as a result of the canal leakage.
0: And I think that's really important to be tense. People forget sometimes about this connection between surface water and groundwater And oftentimes you hear of groups saying they want to line the canals and make them more efficient and stop the leakage, not recognizing that leakage is actually feeding another system and it is not a true loss to the entire system when you consider groundwater and surface water together. Yeah, I
1: completely agree. We sometimes think of them as separate resources and they're definitely no. They're so interlinked in terms of groundwater recharge or base flow to rivers. So we need to treat them as one. So by lining the canals, It might stop one problem, but uh, it really starts another one for the groundwater system. So it might be good to line them if you're over a really saline aquifer, where the water would just go to complete waste. But when it's over an aquifer that is of good quality, then actually the leakage has been fantastic. Extra storage, really, for the groundwater system
0: and then could later come out in the surface water as base flow. Uh, you've got rivers. base
1: flow, or, or what happens very much in, in this region, in, in northern India and into Pakistan, is that later on in the 20th century, when drilling became a lot cheaper and much more widespread, farmers realised that actually if you drill your own borehole and get the groundwater, you've got a lot more control. You don't have to wait for the surface water to come down the irrigation canal. This was particularly important for people who were down the end of a canal system that often didn't get as much water as they wanted. So hence you got this big explosion in the groundwater drilling and Across the Indoginetic Basin Aquifer, which is a big long name for this whole region, there's about 10 million boreholes. There's a lot of boreholes. So that gave the farmers the control that they wanted for when they could pump out and led to more cropping. So sometimes you now get three crops in a year because that they're able to access this groundwater storage. And
0: how deep are these wells? Are they deepening over time? Did they start off very shallow and then now they're getting deeper and deeper? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: And to start off with, the boreholes are pretty shallow because this is a kind of alluvial plain. So the groundwater is pretty close to the surface and certainly now that the water levels have risen so much. So boreholes could be quite shallow, 20, 30 metres to access groundwater. But now you're looking at 50 or 100 meters, of walls being pumped. And if people can, they're drilling deeper ones to, to give them that security. Because in this huge alluvial plain, the sediments can be you know, hundreds up to a kilometer, even more than a kilometer thick up in the northwest of, of Indian Pakistan. The really thick sediments, a thick aquifer.
0: So the recharge that you got from the canals from the mid 1800s to late 1900s. That's like a giant managed aqua recharge project. We talk a lot about managed aqua recharge these days, where we take maybe excess surface water, put it in groundwater. But that really is a similar behavior. That, and it was probably the biggest in the yeah, world. Yeah, that,
1: that, that's what we like to say, that this was the biggest, albeit an accidental one, but the biggest uh, managed aqua recharge system in the, in the world. And really, it has given this big increase of groundwater from surface water. So transfer that surface water, the excess surface water, into the groundwater system. There was a discussion in the 1970s about trying to make use of that behavior. They called it the Ganges water machine. So the two, two scientists had proposed that actually we deliberately lower groundwater levels next to the Ganges during the dry season. So that when the wet season came, then it could capture more of the flood water as it came down. So these were put forward as, as a very expensive but serious proposal to try and make use of this and try and enhance it. I and mean, actually, the World Bank were looking at, at this again recently, and there was some papers out, like Cliff Voss and others, looking at this in the last sort of 10 years or so. Well, Actually, let's think about this again. C- could this actually be done? Could we transfer some of this flood water into the groundwater system?
0: Well, I think that's one of the challenges we're facing these days, because we either have too much water when it's flooding or no water when it's uh, during drought. And so it's trying to manage those extremes. And so understanding the linkages then between surface water and groundwater and managing it accordingly. I think in the US, the Army Corps of Engineers is trying to manage their reservoirs somewhat like that. They call it forecast-informed reservoir operations. So if they're expecting a flood, then they would offload the water to a nearby depleted aquifer or some interim storage. And then they'd have more space then for the flood water and could capture more of it. I think we have to get more ingenious about how we manage these systems when we're trying to deal with these challenging times. And a lot of this focus on water quantity issues, but I mean, water quality is also a big issue. And what's the, what is the water quality like in, in this part of the basin and how is it changing? Yeah. Or So what do you think the future is also for water quality? Yeah, issues?
1: water quality is a massive issue. And we'd written a paper with National Institute of Hydrology and a lot of other partners on the ground work quality, the phase and aquifer back in 2016, where we concluded that we thought water quality would be a, a bigger issue than depletion. the grey satellites have been fantastic of highlighting the depletion, but we thought, actually, let's look again at the water quality. A lot of people remember or know that when you go down towards Bangladesh, you have a big problem with arsenic in the in the groundwater system. We've I been mean, lots of work uh, done on that looking at the very high arsenic in the shallow groundwater systems. But you also get water quality as you go further up the basin into the Northwest India and into the top of the Indus in, in Pakistan. Part of that is arsenic, not as much as further down the system. And that's because of the, the age of the sediments. Very young sediments that are deposited in the space and tend to have arsenic, the high arsenic contamination associated with them. You also get issues with fluoride, uh, some issues with uranium. And it's, sound, it's sounding bad, but this is not all over the place. And if you do some proper sampling and analysis, you can work out if you're bad the water washers. But generally, it's a, a pretty good quality. you just got to watch out for for these patches with arsenic fluoride and uranium. Probably what I think might be the threat here is increased salinity. As you have the flooding and shallow groundwater levels, then you get a lot of evaporation and you can get quite saline groundwater close to the surface. So managing this aquifer system to make sure that you don't have a lot of shallow groundwater giving rise to high salinity, I think is going to be one of the big challenges. Managing that Kind of flooding next to the depletion. So, trying to manage both of these things at the same time, I think, is going to be one of the, the big challenges.
0: And in general, in many places, the shallow groundwater is oftentimes more contaminated than the deeper groundwater. And as you see groundwater developing deeper and deeper, do you think that may cause increased contamination moving down into the yeah, system? Yeah, that's a
1: good question and a really important one for thinking of the long term protection of this groundwater as well can we protect parts that don't get contaminated so yeah parts of the shallow groundwork system are contaminated by the normal stuff fertilizers and nitrate and also with your kind of organic contaminants that we get from pharmaceuticals and pesticides that we find most places where there's humans so you get some contamination in the shallow system of that when you develop deeper then that pumping can begin to induce some vertical flows through the aquifer. And that's something we've been doing quite a bit of research on recently, It's trying to look at how connected these shallow and deep systems are. Because if you go right down the basin to Bangladesh, where all the arsenic is in the shallow system, you actually find the deeper groundwater there is quite disconnected most of the time. A lot of clay layers in the system, and that kind of gives some protection. At the top of the basin, then, there's not so much clay. So what we found is that by pumping deeper, that we are finding that the shallow groundwater can go down into the deeper system. So that's something to look out for, that the deeper groundwater might be a little bit more vulnerable to contamination than it is further down the basin.
0: So what has been the response of the Indian government to your the recent studies then showing that you have a net accumulation of so much water, groundwater, over the past century? So- what has been their response to the, well, these
1: Well, we've been results? very uh, fortunate in this study, uh, in having the National Institute of Hydrology, who's a, a government agency, as part of the study, also being, with this, being in contact with the Central Groundwater Board there as well. So they do a lot, particularly Central uh, Groundwater Board, in trying to manage groundwater across northern India. So I think uh, the accumulation is really interesting. And I think what it's telling us is that We're still getting a lot of groundwater recharge from canals. The canals are still there and they're still leaking. We might not see the huge accumulations just now because we're pumping, they're pumping and the groundwater levels are going down. But trying to take into consideration the fact that these canals are still part of the system and to think once, think twice about lining these canals everywhere because they're part of the groundwater recharge story. And I think some of the challenges that they're also grappling with is how to try and manage both accumulation and salinity and depletion in the same breath, particularly when you've now got the possibility of solar pumps. So maybe there might be more groundwater abstraction happening in the future. So trying to manage that.
0: And so managing the surface water and groundwater conjunctively then I think would be really important to uh, develop more resilience in the system as they go forward. But there probably different government agencies in charge of surface water and groundwater and, and different agencies mm-hmm. in charge of agricultural development. So it's very difficult, it seems, to it's, coordinate. It's, it's
1: very difficult for them and it's very difficult for most countries in the world. We seem to be it really difficult for ourselves to try and manage our water resources by having such distributed or disconnected institutes trying to manage water resor- resources. So yes, you've got the agricultural bodies and we've also got, as you have in the US, they've got the states and the federal system. So trying to balance all these things and then puts it outputs. What's been great in India has been the, they've been publishing a lot more data. So as technology gets better, so a lot of data is now more widely available and they've got lots of forecasts that they publish every year about whether groundwater is being overexploited or not. So hopefully that's giving the tools to try and help manage things conjunctively in the future.
0: I really commend you guys for leasing through all (laughs) those data reports and everything and reconstructing the canal development and the groundwater levels from old reports and everything and showing the, the increase in uh, tube wells that were uh, installed in the late 1900s and stuff. Uh, those records and those reports are very vulnerable to being destroyed or lost. And so, pulling that all these data together is extremely valuable because you can't replace them. You can't uh, generate that after the fact. You can probably model it. But I mean, I admire yeah. you guys for doing all of that. I think
1: I've done that for most of my career. <laughs> and so, what I do is I, I love to go through it and rummage through filing cabinets in people's offices because you know, often people. Don't have the time to look at data and to do something with it so i love just going through and seeing what i can find and then seeing if we can make that more useful to them or to everybody else as you say these data are so precious and so vulnerable
0: i think we feel these days unless it's online it doesn't <laughs> yeah, exist right. and so i think it's very important that we don't go that route So now jumping to another area, to Africa, where you have uh, spent a lot of your career and made huge advances. And I think maybe starting with the paper that you published in Environmental Research Letters in 2012 that had a huge impact on people's perception and understanding of groundwater resources in Africa. Maybe you can describe a little bit about that work and then what the feedback was from the community and from other groups as they learn
1: more yes, about certainly. the system. So, so this was yeah, some work that we published in 2012. And again, it had taken us several years of just going through different data reports and maps with partners. And what we were trying to do was give a quantification of the available groundwater resources across Africa and how they could be exploited. So what kind of yields you'd get if you would uh, drill a well somewhere. And it was at a continental scale. So not for somebody to go out and site a well in a particular village, but just to give this view to to help donors and uh, UN agencies think about using groundwater as a resource to help improve climate resilience. So that was the the reason behind it all. So we ended up uh, publishing some maps in 2012, and it went viral. My life changed for six months after that the, the numbers got picked up by the bbc and went uh, all, all around the world for, for a number of months and really i think what interested people probably wasn't a surprise to most hydrogeologists but seemed to be a surprise to, to a lot of other people was that there's a hundred times more groundwater resources than there were annual renewable surface water resources. So that was our kind of head- headline thing, And it just showed just a great potential that groundwater has as, a, as nature's reservoir. So yeah, so there was lots of media interest in it. And uh, then that gave opportunity for a lot of my people that I worked with, my collaborators and partners in different African countries to, to suddenly explain to their ministers, what's all this groundwater resources? It kind of gave groundwater a little bit more of a uh, visibility across many of these countries. What a lot of the newspapers began to concentrate on was the big groundwater resources under the Sahara. You know, that's what everybody's always interested in or seems to be interested in, these great untapped lakes of groundwater under the Sahara Desert. But that wasn't really my main interest, and most of the people that were working on it wasn't really our interest. It was more the groundwater resources available where people lived, and particularly in the crystalline basement aquifers, which are the hard rocks, the granites, and the gneisses, big crystalline rocks which we normally don't think of a lot of groundwater in them but when they when they weather when they've got tropical weathering then maybe the top 50 meters are slightly broken There's maybe turned into sands and gravels or are more fractured and then you can actually drill boreholes, and you can get enough water for a community water supply you know, with a hand pump or maybe small scale irrigation so that was really uh, most of our interest was in that rather than the huge sandstone, the uh, aquifers, the Nubian aquifers, and such that are in the North Africa.
0: So, the Nubian and some of those northern African aquifers are probably more similar to the Indo Gangetic Basin, kilometres thick, and, but they very low rates of replenishment, low recharge rains. There's a lot of irrigation in North Africa, and so maybe they've been declining some. The basement aquifers and the weathered basement uh, is probably more prevalent yeah. in maybe 40% of the continent. And so these are fairly thin aquifers then. And a lot of people are concerned about over-exploiting aquifers. What I mean, these relatively thin aquifers, they're self-regulated, right? You can't go too far wrong and, uh, because you're, it's a dynamic yeah, so, system.
1: So the basement aquifers, they've got quite low permeability. When you pump them, it's hard for the, for you to pump out the hole of the, abstract the whole like, it's not like you can drill one well and you're going to be affecting people tens of kilometers away. It's got a smaller cone of depression. So it's quite hard to pump out a high yield from an individual borehole. It can be done and we've done quite a bit of work with Richard Taylor and others looking at where you might get high yielding boreholes in crystalline basement, but it is pretty rare. So the majority of people in the majority of places, it's hard to to pop out too much. And on the kind of sustainability side of it, the 2012 maps, we hadn't considered groundwater recharge at that point. We started another project with Mike Edmonds, who's sadly not with us any longer. We started working with him, getting together a a data set of uh, groundwater recharge then from across Africa, of course, which you were involved in as well, Bridget. So that, that was really useful. Having that added story, we published that just last year, which showed the patterns of groundwater recharge across Africa. And for most of the crystalline basement aquifers, which are these low storage ones, as you say, most of them are actually in areas where you do get regular recharge. They're more in the subtropical areas where you get regular recharge. So it's unlikely that you're get, going to get multiple years of drought to dry them out. And as you say, the big sandstone aquifers, which have the huge groundwater storage, particularly in North Africa, they're the ones where you don't get a lot of recharge, but you've got this amazing groundwater storage, which people are using, as you say, to irrigate and for drinking water at the moment.
0: And so I think with these maps, then, you show the importance of the geology and understanding the geology. And oftentimes these days we do everything desktop and things like that, but going out into the field and then taking advantage of All the mapping that the different agencies did back in the 1900s, the British, the French, and all of that, and all those reports, they're a huge resource to understand these systems. And I think one thing that comes to mind is the difficulty of drilling a successful well in in some of these basement offers when you're trying to find fractures and stuff, and you have to use other tools to try to drill more successful wells. Yeah,
1: it's quite a lot of pressure on a, a driller to try and find groundwater in a village. You have these big water projects, having to go out to a village and find a place where you actually can drill a successful waterhole. In some places, like the Indogangetic basin, uh, you could drill most places and you'll find enough water for a hand pump. But in the crystalline basement aquifers, you've got to find the places where the fractures are, where the regolith is, is deep enough. Two things are important there. One is, one is experience, so having drillers and hydrogeologists that know their area, and then using geophysics as well. So geophysics is a great tool for siting boreholes in basement aquifers, trying to find areas that conduct electricity a little bit more, a little bit easier. tends to mean it's got thicker weathering and therefore a a better, better target. Drilling a borehole is always a lottery. You can minimize the odds or get the odds more in your favor, but you can never say it's going to be 100% successful. That's something that I try and do with my work with donors or with people who are funding projects. There's not to put too much unrealistic expectations. You're not going to get 100% success rate. Make sure that you understand if you're working in this area and a particular area that success rate might be 50% here for drilling. Or in this other area, it might be really tricky and it's only 30%, or this area might be more like 80%. So that kind of information, and that's what we're trying to do with some of our, the maps we're doing now, that kind of information can then help budget these projects properly and make sure that you're not putting unrealistic expectations on, the, on success rates.
0: You've definitely worked on hand pumps, and oftentimes we hear NGO, and non-governmental organizations, or other groups who fund these projects. They don't stay on top of it, or there's no operational or maintenance funding, or things like that. There's capital to install them. So, what has been your experience trying to figure out how many of these hand pumps remain operational over time? And what do you think is the solution to trying to improve those, the operational aspects? Big, big
1: questions, and you're right. I've done a lot of work in hand pumps and really love working on rural water supply and hand pumps. And I think that's partly because I got the opportunity as a student to go and spend a summer working in Nigeria with an NGO as a physicist at that point. When and saw a lot of hand pumps there and that converted me to doing geophysics Whoa. and uh, into hydrogeology. So we've been working over the last five years or so trying to get a handle on what the true rate of what we call functionality of these hand pumps are. How many are still working? What proportion are still working? And there's a great organization called the Rural Water Supply Network that's worked on this for decades. And there's figures, you know, of maybe 20 to 30 percent not working at any one time. But we developed a project with some great partners in Ethiopia, Uganda and Malawi, where we went out to try and monitor sort of true functionality, which we felt was how many are actually delivering what they're meant to be delivering, not just as any water coming out, But is it actually giving the yield it should be and is it working for most of the year or is it got any downtime throughout the year? And what we found with that was that actually the the average is more like 50% or less than 50% of hand pumps were actually giving the kind of yield they should have been for a community. So that was pretty disappointing and we thought, well, this is a big issue. And it means that the people that are relying on this service, on this water, are not getting what they need. So we then split the project into, into two aspects of it. One was then to try and work out what the impacts of not having a functioning okay. water supply were on communities. And there's some great social scientists working on that. And another part where we then deconstructed 150 water points, rural hand pumps, to try and work out why aren't they working? What What is it about these that means they, they only work for six months of the year or they don't give a enough yield or you know or just break down altogether that was a big effort with a lot of partners i think it was 20 person years of field work for deconstructing these thumps and taking them apart and doing lots of little tests tests on them
0: and so do you think then that it's really important for these ngos and USAID and the World Bank here to not just uh, install these things and be at the upfront costs and stuff, but also consider operational aspects. And I think USAID is moving in this direction. And I presume other agencies are also understanding that they need to continue to interact with the the communities and, and I guess get the governance. It's great that you were working with social scientists because Governance is a huge aspect
1: of these So what has been really good is that an awful lot of people are now working on this and uh, you're right, USAID and a lot of NGOs and and governments are really focused now on, on not just installing infrastructure, but trying to make sure that it's about a water service that continues well into the future. And of course, it's not easy. If the answer was easy, it would have been sorted decades ago. But the answer is really complicated and also it's quite specific to different or context specific really so what we had found in our sort of deconstructing of the water points and and also with some social scientists let's say working on the impacts but then we also had social scientists working on the management structures in each of these villages what we found was that on the physical side quite a few of these boreholes actually had been drilled in places where the, the aquifer couldn't support even a hand pump the driller had drilled, there was some water there, but the, the transmissivities, we'd, we'd say as hydrogeologists, wasn't enough to support the yield. So the borehole was always doomed from, to start over. with. It was always struggling. We also found some others where, strangely, the intake to the pump was just at the water table. So it wasn't deep enough. And you think, why didn't put it deeper? But by taking it apart, we realise it's because the rising main... So the pipes inside had become corroded and there wasn't enough money to replace them. So they just had to chuck out the corroded ones. This was getting shorter and shorter. So that's a, something you think, well, that should be able to be sorted. And sometimes the borehole hadn't been constructed just right. So when you drill a borehole, you put pipes inside it, which then have holes in them, just a little water in. For some of them, the holes were too deep and some of others were too shallow. So they weren't actually next to the bits of the aquifer that were going to that, that, that had the water in them. So the answers to that are really trying to increase the professionalism of drilling these boreholes, making sure there's enough resources, enough funding to make sure that these boreholes are put in the right place and that they've got the right expertise to install them properly. But then for the long-term functioning of it, it's about getting spare parts of good quality. So sometimes spare parts come in and they're not galvanized properly, so they begin to corrode quickly. So it's about spare parts. In others, it's, it was about management of these water pumps. And what we found, or the social scientists found, was there was a pluretta, that's the right word, of different community management arrangements that the people had. Some people would be, a, it would be a, maybe a women's institute, and so in others it might be a church or a mosque or a, a farming sort of community. That would gather funds the, the kind of water management committee that's always set up by the NGOs a lot of the time that wasn't really working it was just up there in name and it was really these other institutes that managed the water resources so the common denominator in it all was having enough funds and having good external support to manage that water resources i think the whole idea of community management, which people started working on in the 1980s, sounded fantastic and was a fantastic idea if communities could manage these things themselves. But actually, over the years, realized that people need support. I mean, I don't know how to manage my water supply. People do need support to and the right expertise, be it from the private sector, be it from the local government, be it from an NGO still need, people still need that external support to make sure that these water supplies are being properly ma- maintained, and then when they break down, being, pro- being fixed really quickly.
0: And so, there's a lot of interest these days on solar pumps, mm. and also concerns that with all of these solar pumps that maybe they would not manage the aquifers sustainably. So one group of people think that we have underdeveloped groundwater resources in Africa, and that it's criminal that it's not more developed to help with poverty alleviation and economic development. And others think that you know, oh, you don't want to develop resources more uh, unsustainably. So, what are your thoughts about some of these discussions, and what impact do you think solar pumps might have in the future? I think. The World Bank is discussions about installing, replacing hand pumps with solar pumps, and 400 in, in different countries the staff 400, 600, that sort of thing. I would like to hear what you think about some of those issues.
1: Yeah, it, again, a really interesting question and an interesting debate. And I, I can understand why people are cautious about overexploiting groundwater. I think that comes from what might have happened in parts of Asia and India, what's happened in parts of the US uh, and other parts of the world where groundwater has been overexploited? But I remember a, a quote from Jude Cobin, who's one uh, somebody who uh, wrote a paper recently about trying to unlock the potential groundwater in Africa, and he said that there's many African countries who'd love the opportunity to manage an overexploited aquifer, it just there hasn't been the resources in there to develop groundwater. So I think to him, Think of it as a, almost a tale of two groundwaters. You've got the groundwater overexploited systems <clears throat> that we have in uh, in Asia, maybe parts of North a- Africa and the Middle East, and then in many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a underdeveloped groundwater. There's so much more potential there.
0: Do you think if they start and uh, putting solar pumps in, and that maybe that will improve increase development in and you have background to understanding hand pumps. How do you think they will be able to manage solar pumps? Or do you think that will be even more challenging? And yeah. which groups might be able to deal with well, it? I
1: think that would be my main concern for Africa uh, or the African countries I've worked in and the communities I've worked with is that they've struggled to manage a hand pump because of the costs involved and getting the spare parts and the external support. So if you're going to step up to have a solar systems then need to make sure we've got that even better support in place to make sure that lifetime costs are, are put in place and it's not just constructed and then three years time solar panels have been stolen and there's no way back for the solar pump. So I'd be more concerned about that at the moment than an over exploitation of water resources. I also think that because of the crystalline basement aquifer. It's got low permeability. A lot of these, you've got to get the right size of solar pump in there. If you design a scheme and put in a big solar pump, it's unlikely to work well in a crystalline basement aquifer because it will just cut out because the water levels will draw down quickly and then it will cut out. And We've been working with some electrical engineers looking at this in different projects in several countries, but you've got to design these solar pumps to match the groundwater environment so that these portals can work well. And you've got to make sure you put in the support to make sure that they're managed appropriately and that the funds are there, do that.
0: So one huge outcome from your 2012 paper and all the publicity that came with it was funding. To do research in Africa and then developing the network of people in Africa and training people in capacity development. Maybe you can describe the upgrow project and uh, then the different parts of it and then how that helped facilitate that development.
1: Yeah, that was the one of the best things that came out of that paper and all the media circus that went along with it was that we then managed to help get some funding for a seven-year program of research into groundwater in Africa. It's called UpGrow, Unlocking the Potential of Groundwater Resources in Africa. As part of this program, we were then able to work with a lot more scientists across Africa. So I think we had 150 scientists all together working across five large projects and about 12 catalyst projects. And then something alongside that, which was about making data more available, and that was producing an online atlas of groundwater in Africa which took the maps that we had done and then with hydrogeologists in each African country developing a, an online sort of wiki summary of groundwater resources for their country. So some excellent research was done as part of the UPCO program and it was just really great to have decent funding to to fund our partners, Addis Abel University or University of Macareri or wherever. It was just great to have this jointly conceived projects and jointly funded projects. The bit of work i just discussed about hand pump functionality was one of these projects called Hidden Crisis. There was another one on called Grow Futures, which was trying to look at how groundwater could be used to improve agriculture. And that was looking again with social scientists and with physical scientists looking at where there's most potential for irrigation to help support livelihoods and where groundwater could help with that. Some other research that was done as, done as part of UPRO was helping develop a new sensor for measuring whether groundwater was contaminated or not. This, this is one that I, I, really excites me because it was, a, it was trying to get a, a way of going to a borehole and just taking one measurement to see whether there was bacteria in it or not. Normally, to see if something's contaminated, you take a sample and it's got to be very clean and tidy and you go and incubate it and then you need to have a microscope to count all the different uh, cultures and stuff. But this was work where they tried to use something called fluorescence, which happens with organic material if you hit it with with UV light, trying to match that to bacteriological contamination. And through UpGrow, they've got really far with that technology now and more or less just demonstrated that this technique will work that you could maybe go to a site and see if it's vulnerable to to contamination from bacteria not just from that. There was lots of other work on viruses as well different viruses in groundwater and a great project run out of Oxford University looking at different models for managing rural water supply. So I was talking about external support being so important. This project then looked at different models and particularly the private sector and how that could really help make water supply more sustainable.
0: It's interesting, Alan, you've been working in all of these developing countries and these are semi-arid regions and very low water availability. Uh, but you live in Edinburgh, and we never think, because it never stops raining, seeing that in, I'm from Ireland, we think the drought is something that happens elsewhere and stuff. But uh, even in Edinburgh, I think you you also do some work in the UK, and when you've had a month without rain or, or things like that, you have issues with water supply, right? Or yeah,
1: so. that's right. W- water supply issues are even hitting Scotland, which most people around the world think is so wet. But yeah in the u k groundwater makes up about thirty percent of the public water supply and this year we've had quite a bad drought over the summer. It's been very dry over the summer, and a lot of our surface water reservoirs have been running low. there's post pipe bands so just in the same way as for Africa, where people are developing groundwater as a more resilient water resource, it's the same issue here is that you know for for water companies trying to think of how to develop groundwater as a more resilient water supply. And for Scotland, we have quite a lot of little private water supplies, little wells and springs, and there's tapping very shallow groundwater. Some might argue, is it groundwater or not? You could have a theoretical debate with a hydrologist and a hydrogeologist, maybe only four, four meters deep. So a lot of them, they do get quite vulnerable. If it stops raining for two or three months, they get quite vulnerable. So yeah, there's a lot of thinking here. How do we improve the resilience of, of water supply for these private water supplies? If we have, which would be unheard of, if it stopped raining for three months in Scotland, what, what would happen to these water supplies? Lots of thinking going on.
0: And so you've received a lot of funding in the past from agencies in the UK and elsewhere. How is the funding situation these days? Did it, has changed, or how has that evolved? And what do you see the future you know, for funding and work in developing countries?
1: Yeah, well, funding has not been great over the last few years. So like several other countries, the UK has reduced the amount of money it goes towards international aid as a result of the money sent out for COVID. So the amount of money for, internet, for research into international issues such as this and for aid has, has reduced significantly. So it's not so easy to get funding now th- through that sort of route. So it's been I think it's challenging for everybody over the world at the moment to get funding which is a shame because not just for us, but I think it's a network of scientists that you put together. So this UpGrow program we talked about, you know, 150 scientists developed some great research practices, fantastic young early career researchers in different countries coming through. And it would just be good to have uh, funding opportunities for them to carry on research that's meaningful for them and their country and to make sure that's then going into practice. There, are, there is quite a lot of money going into some sort of capital projects at the moment, so maybe 100 million here and there for developing water supply. And what we'd like to make sure is as part of these capital projects, some money is then put towards actually understanding the groundwater resources and doing that kind of legwork behind the scenes to make sure that these water supplies that are put in place don't dry up really quickly. <laughs>
0: So we've talked about a lot of different things, Alan, and I'm a huge admirer of your work and, and your growth. Is there anything else that you would like to add or that I've, we've missed in discussing these topics? Or I
1: don't think so. I think we've ra- ranged all over the world. I might not have said it throughout, well, uh, throughout the different topics that we've covered, but of course all, all this work has been done with loads and loads of other people So I've been really fortunate to have worked with some great people, not just at BGS, but also in all these different countries that I work in, and just how great a lot of our sort of co-collaborators are in these different countries. And I think looking forward, we just need to keep working on groundwater because it is the resilient water resource for the future. And it's been such a blessing to so many people where surface water is in short supply or is variable. And we need to protect these water resources, we need to understand them and protect them so that future generations can really benefit from them as well.
0: I think we've seen that with Cape Town issues, where they were totally dependent on the surface reservoirs, and then they were moving towards day zero, and then they started to, trying to develop some of the groundwater resources. I think you you knew some of the people involved in that, right? Yeah, I
1: heard some lot, some great stories there, and how they very quickly they realised that they need to drill some groundwater or exploit the groundwater resources through some wells, and they quickly try to put in water supplies at key places such as schools and hospitals and such. It was a great visual aid of how important groundwater resources can be and when these droughts hit. Yeah.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with a us pleasure. today and I wish you luck in all your future work and heading up the hydrogeology group at BGS and everything and look forward to collaborating with you more in the future. Thank you so much, Alan.
1: A pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Richard.